middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Well, hey there. Welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Math Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Allison, and today I'm excited to talk about one of my favorite topics, mindfulness. After all, the podcast is called the Mindful Math Podcast, and at first this may seem like an unlikely pairing. So what exactly is the connection between mindfulness and math? By the end of today's episode, you will have the answer. First, let's get on the same page about the term mindfulness. Wikipedia defines it as the psychological process of purposely bringing one's attention to experiences occurring in the present moment without judgment, which one develops through the practice of meditation and through other training. That definition accurately describes what I mean when I use the term mindful. And to be even more specific, By experiences occurring in the present moment, I'm talking about the experience itself plus the feelings, the thoughts, and the bodily sensations that come along with it. So I'll pose the question to you again. What does this have to do with teaching, learning, and coaching math? Bear with me as I explain how I've come to see it. So I had a Catholic upbringing. I went to Catholic schools for most of my childhood, and we rarely missed church on the weekends. I pretty much hated church except for the music, which I enjoyed singing in an opera voice, right into my sister's ear as we walked down the aisle for communion. There were a few rare occasions in my life where I was seeking purpose or answers or community in which I found peace and comfort attending Mass, but I think that was more so because it was quiet and familiar, not really because of the content itself. But even more than hating church, I hated being told what to believe. In my religious training, beliefs were presented as fact. Facts that you shouldn't question if you were a good Catholic. We were just supposed to believe these things, even if they didn't make sense to us. And trust me, many of them didn't make any sense to me. I remember one time we had an assignment to memorize the Nicene Creed and then recite it for a grade. It's the one that starts, 
We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, I didn't really have a problem with that first sentence. But as it goes on and as I got older, I realized that there were parts of it that I didn't actually believe. And yet, not once during my Catholic education did anyone ask me what I believed or if I had any questions that needed to be answered in order to make a decision. I was simply told what to believe and then treated like a troublemaker if I ever dared to question it. In the past few months since I resigned from my full-time job to become an entrepreneur, it's become very clear to me just how much I value being in control. My husband jokes that I'm just one of those people who should not have a boss. And he's probably right. Thinking back on my childhood, it seems obvious. I always did want to be the teacher when we were playing school, and I had a tough time in group projects when I wasn't in charge. I highly value being in control of my time and my circumstances and, most of all, my beliefs. But as children, most of us aren't in control most of the time. Of course, it varies, and some of us had stricter parents than others. And now we're more conscious of giving our own children choices, at least some of the time. But when I was a child, this wasn't the norm. Most of us were told where we would live and where we would go to school, whose birthday parties we could attend, what was appropriate to wear for a given occasion, and what we'd eat for dinner. We were also told what to believe, and that included what to believe about religion, the world, and ourselves. It wasn't uncommon for adults, whether it be teachers or parents or other family members, to tell us things about the world or about ourselves and present them as fact, when in actuality it was their beliefs or their perceptions or their interpretations. Here are some examples. Statements that build a scarcity mindset, such as, how are you going to do that? You don't know anything about that. Or it could be a label. Oh, you know Jasmine, she's always looking out for herself. So selfish. Comparisons have the same effect. He's not as athletic as his brother Johnny. Sometimes it's a judgment. Recently, I overheard an adult discipline a child by saying, of course Jacob had to ruin it for everyone because he never listens. Comments from trusted adults can help us believe in ourselves or second-guess our choices. Oh, you don't want to become an artist. You'll never be able to support yourself that way. All of these send an implicit message that the way you are or the choice you're making is flawed. That it's not the ideal way to be. And if you were some other way, some ideal way, it would be better. And you'd be better. Now, I'm not saying that our parents were trying to do wrong by us or hurt us or that they're bad people. They did the best they could based on the knowledge and skills that they had. They were trying to prepare us for life in the real world. They were hoping to set us up for success by telling us how it is and how the world works and what our limitations were and how we need to navigate in order to survive. However, most of the people I know walked out of their childhood feeling like they had at least a few things wrong with them. And many of those same people have spent a lot of time and money in therapy trying to work through their painful childhood experiences in order to identify the false beliefs they have about themselves and work to create new beliefs that will better serve them. 
coming out of my childhood, I felt like I wasn't good enough and at times like I was crazy. I was and still can be pretty hard on myself. I wanted other people's approval. Parents, bosses, friends, colleagues. I was constantly comparing myself to other people and wishing that I could be more. To be smarter, to be nicer, to be more easygoing. The truth was that I didn't think who I was deep down, my most authentic self, was good enough. I felt this way for a long time, like there was something wrong with me, like I was flawed. But that changed seven years ago when a friend invited me to a personal development weekend retreat here in Chicago. During the retreat, they said some shocking things. Like, all feelings are okay. Wait, what? I thought I was supposed to be happy all the time. Like, I'm not my thoughts. Shit, what a relief. So my crazy thought doesn't mean I'm crazy? Like, it's not selfish to go for your own satisfaction. Really? I thought the first shall be last and the last shall be first meant I should always put others before myself. Like, we all have deep desires and they don't make us bad. They make us human. Wait, all of us? So I'm not weird? I learned that some traits I didn't like about myself can actually be seen as a gift. Mind blown. I thought my obsession with order and organization made me a difficult person, not a worthy person. Finally, I can stop trying to be easygoing. After that weekend, I invested time and money in my personal development in order to live a more conscious life. I wanted to make my own decisions about what to believe and how to live, not let my unconscious programming lead me through life half asleep. I spent an entire year doing weekly assignments that helped me change my actions, which helped me change my beliefs. For example, I learned how to say no for the first time without feeling guilty through an assignment called Displease with Ease. We also did a lot of work to recognize and then express our feelings. In fact, expressing feelings was part of the assignment I had the week I gave birth to my first child. And trust me, I didn't hold back my feelings which I might have been tempted to do if not for this assignment. After three hours of intense pushing, when a nurse told me to push harder, I looked her square in the face and said, listen, I'm pushing as hard as I can, and I've been doing that for the past three hours. It is not helpful to me when you tell me to push harder. Please stop saying that. Each of the assignments helped me identify mistaken beliefs I have about myself, that I'm not enough. False. I am enough that I'm too much. False. I'm just the right amount. That I don't matter. False. My thoughts, feelings, and desires do matter. And as I uncovered these mistaken beliefs in myself and watched my group members do the same, I realized a few things. First, many of us have similar mistaken beliefs that we've adopted from our childhood experiences. I know so many people who feel like they're not enough. Number two, different people have different mistaken beliefs. So, for example, some people think I have to do everything myself for it to get done, while others think I'll never be able to do this alone. And thirdly, 
Underneath all of our feelings and mistaken beliefs, we have common desires. Some of them are to be seen, to be heard, to be loved, to matter, to connect, to be enough, and to make a difference. And the more I've done this kind of work, the more conscious I've become. And the more conscious I've become, the more layers I see. What I mean is that situations are rarely what they seem to be on the surface. For example, have you ever blown up about something seemingly small and you weren't sure why? Or someone told you something and you think you should feel happy for them, but inside you realize you're actually sad or angry? Or maybe you're on the other side of it. You're with someone and out of the blue, they have a big reaction to something and you're like, what just happened? Yes, we have all been there. (laughs) These are triggers. They're strong feelings that seem disproportionate to the situation at hand, and they indicate that there are feelings and mistaken beliefs bubbling up under the surface. They do not indicate that the person is mean or bad or fundamentally flawed. Let me repeat that. When you are triggered, you are not mean or bad or fundamentally flawed. And guess what? Neither are our students or our colleagues, or the leaders of our schools, or the teachers we coach, or the parents of our students. By becoming more mindful, I was able to recognize triggers in myself and in other people more clearly. It became my sixth sense. Not only could I see situations for what they were on the surface, but I was also able to see what was bubbling up underneath the feelings and the mistaken beliefs and the deep desires of the people involved. And this sense helped me connect with everyone I interacted with at the school in a deeper way than I ever had before. Whether it be the team of teachers I worked with or the parents or the staff and the students in my advisory. For example, I worked with a teacher who, like me, is a recovering perfectionist. She had received some feedback that a bulletin board in her classroom was outdated and it needed to be changed. And the thought running through her head was that she was a failure. She had she was a great teacher, and she had done so many things right. She was teaching her kids. She kept up with her grading and her planning and all these other things. But the one thing she hadn't got around to was changing out the bulletin board. So, of course, it wasn't true at all that she was a failure. But because of how she's wired and her own life experiences, this feedback was very upsetting to her. Now, because of the work I had done and the work I continue doing to understand my own feelings and all the stuff that's beneath them, the thoughts and the stories and the desires, I didn't judge or try to change her feelings. Instead, I was able to help her unpack them and address the root of it, which is that she has a mistaken belief that she's not enough. And when she's criticized, this belief is triggered, and then she feels overwhelmed by it. Deep down, she just wants to feel like she's enough, and she's not sure how to do that in the face of constructive feedback, at least not at the time. Here's another instance that has stuck with me, this time with my advisory students. We were checking in about the week, and somehow we got on the topic of how strict the rules were at our school. Students said that they felt like they were always losing demerits and privileges, and they felt like they were being penalized for too many things and things that didn't really matter or affect their learning. 
In the past, when this kind of conversation started, I usually shut it down because of how uncomfortable it made me feel. But this time, instead of defending the rules or denying what they were saying or invalidating my students' feelings, I simply listened and I heard them. I looked at their faces and I felt what they were feeling and I saw the deep desires that were underneath. They wanted to have a voice, they wanted to have some control to feel like they were enough, to be seen and appreciated for their gifts. And they were telling me that the behavior management system we currently had was breaking them down and deflating them, not building them up and incentivizing them like we had intended. This was a different kind of interaction than I'd had with my advisory students up to that point. And it was because when they opened up, this time I listened, without judgment. And as a result, we were able to connect as people on a human-to-human level, soul-to-soul. I knew they wanted to matter because I knew I wanted to matter. And we all want to matter. A friend introduced me to yoga about 12 years ago, and I loved it immediately. This is where I first heard the term namaste, which is a Sanskrit word meaning the light in me honors the light in you. At the time, I liked the sound of the word namaste, but I had no idea what was meant by the light in me honors the light in you. But now I know. It means that we, at our essence, are not our physical bodies. Instead, we each have a divine spark in us that connects us to each other and to the universe. In Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose, He explains why people who have experienced disasters or situations where they end up with nothing sometimes feel the greatest peace of their lives. In his words, you realize your essential identity as formless, as an all-pervasive presence of being prior to all forms, all identifications. You realize your true identity as consciousness itself rather than what consciousness had identified with. That's the peace of God. The ultimate truth of who you are is not I am this or I am that, but I am. That's from page 57 if you have the book. This makes me think back to the situation with the teacher who felt like she wasn't enough because she didn't get a perfect score on the classroom walkthrough. Or The times any of us feel like we're not enough because we don't have a certain thing or a certain title or a certain role. But the truth is that we're all enough. And we don't have to wait for someone else to tell us this or for a perfect score during a classroom walkthrough. It just is so. It's like when Dorothy realized she could access home anytime she wanted to by clicking her heels together three times and saying, there's no place like home. We can be still and feel our own I am and remind ourselves that we are enough. We can work to see that light in each other and in our students and colleagues and parents. We can live out the meaning of namaste. The light in me honors the light in you. But it starts with doing the inner work ourselves. No one can do this work for you. 
And that's the reason that mindfulness is included as part of my mission to improve math teaching and learning, because mindfulness reminds us that we're working human to human, soul to soul. This isn't just about numbers and accountability and rubrics and scores. It's about people, and people matter. And the more we recognize the light in ourselves, the more we can live consciously instead of unconsciously. The more we can understand our triggers and where they come from, the more grounded and joyful we can be. And it helps us relate to each other with compassion and understanding, in addition to high expectations. I wish I could take back some of the interactions I had before I did this personal development work, which created missed opportunities and judgments and lack of compassion at times. But I can't go back and do it over again. I love the Maya Angelou quote that says, Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So I choose to focus on that. Doing better now that I know better. One of the main reasons I started this podcast was to share my mistakes and lessons learned so you can avoid them. And the mistake I made was waiting to do my own personal growth work. Recently, The Atlantic published an article called What Anti-Racist Teachers Do Differently. It's written by Perrette McCamey. I know many of us are working to become anti-racist. And I want to share part of the author's message as we close out this episode, because I think it relates to mindfulness. She says, anti-racist teachers take Black students seriously. It requires educators to view the success of Black students as central to the success of their own teaching. And later, the only measure of our anti-racist teaching will be the academic success of all of our students, including our Black students. She goes on to say, I spent the majority of my career in the classroom, and I loved it because to do it well, it required that I call on all aspects of my humanity. Teachers who do not value Black students will shift the discussion away from their own practice when they see that Black students are not succeeding in their classes. I agree with her statements, and I'll also add that in my experience, teachers who have interrogated their own mistaken beliefs and worked to replace them with empowering beliefs are better teachers. They are able to regulate themselves emotionally in the face of triggers. They accept constructive feedback without taking it personally. And when they see disparities in the data, they take action to fix it instead of deflecting, defending, or denying. When you invest in your own personal development, you're better able to build the strong classroom community you want to build. You're more open to adjusting your teaching practices to meet students' needs. And you'll get more out of coaching. Personal growth work is the first step on the fast track to better teaching and ultimately better results for your students. If I could go back to my time in the classroom, I'd spend less time planning lessons and grading papers and more time developing myself because it is the linchpin for everything else. So with that, if you are looking for ways to become more mindful in order to live more consciously and to identify and address your mistaken beliefs, consider picking up A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose by Eckhart Tolle. 
or listen into Oprah's Super Soul Conversations podcast, where she and Eckhart Tolle discuss each chapter of the book in 10 separate episodes. For links to A New Earth and Oprah's podcast, as well as a link to the Atlantic article that I mentioned earlier, go to www.mindfulmathcoach.com forward slash episode six. That's the numeral six. And you'll find the show notes there. In closing, I want to extend an invitation to you to join me on the journey to provide equitable math learning experiences and outcomes for students of color. One great way to start is to head over to mindfulmathcoach.com and sign up for my weekly email where I share inspiration, resources, and tips. If you enjoyed this episode and want to make sure you don't miss the next one, head over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen in and hit subscribe now. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and oftentimes the math improvement journey and the journey towards an equitable and just society can feel a thousand miles long. That's why I'm so glad we're on this mindful math journey together, and in particular why I'm glad you've chosen to take a single step forward today with me by listening into this episode. Thanks for tuning in.